As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And welcome to our second edition of the VanCast this week. Of course, we had the live room on Monday night with myself and Drancer when the Canucks fell to or climbed to. No, they just stayed at 11, which is what most of us expected. Probably a win for this organization, given the fact that in recent draft lotteries, they have dropped a little bit. So we got two VanCasts this week. Harm joins us right now. we got a lot to get into Canuck-wise. But first, we are delighted to have with us NHL Prospects Analyst for the Athletic, Mr. Corey Pronman. Corey, thanks so much for joining us, because you know Canuck Nation is all about figuring out who Vancouver is going to take at number 11, my friend. Yeah, sure thing. Thank you for having me. Well, so let's go there, you know, and, and, you know, one of the things with this draft that led Drancer and many of us to really question the Canucks strategy during the last couple of months of the season when they overplayed Elias Pettersson and heavy minutes to Quinn Hughes and certainly JT Miller as well and, and got Thatcher Demko in as much as they possibly could because they were trying to fix culture and, and get things set for next year and all of those things that, you know, we all kind of side-eye a little bit. Um, and in the end, it didn't necessarily cost them a lot, right? Like maybe they could have dropped to about seventh and, and picked seventh overall. Uh, and everybody kind of felt that this was a really deep draft. There were going to be good players available throughout. Let's start with the draft tiers. We know that Connor Bedard is in a tier by himself, but where do the rest of the tiers break down and how much was actually lost on the part of the Canucks by not picking around seventh or eighth as opposed to, you know, knowing number one was never going to happen? Yeah, I don't think the difference between seven and 11 is that significant. I mean, you look, look at the history of the drafts and yes, getting seven is definitely better than, than getting 11, but I don't think it's, it's, uh, dramatically different whether in a typical draft or, or, or this year. I think the only distinction is really to come through depending on how the first seven picks play out. 
because I think at most uh, scouts I've talked to and myself agree, there are five legit premium names in this year's draft. Connor Bedard uh, with Regina and Infantili in Michigan, uh, Leo Carlson with all Rebro in Sweden, uh, Will Smith, the top center on the U.S. program, and then finally, Matvey Michkov with Scott St. Petersburg. And I, I think we all believe though that the non-Michkov players are probably going to be the first four names picked in some order. No guarantees ever in the draft, but the high probability they are the first four names picked. And then the question becomes, where does Michkov go? He might go before one of those guys, to be quite honest. It's not impossible, but I think more than likely he will go sometime after that. He could go five. He could go six. He may go seven. He may go later. I think that's the one interesting variable in this draft where, you know, could Mitchkoff have been there at your pick? Would you have even done it? I think those are interesting questions to ask. But in terms of the rest of the body of the draft, whether it's, you know, David Reinbacker, whether it's, you know, Brayden Yeager, Oliver Morgay, Perot, Samuel Hanzik, Nate Daniels, and Albert Dvorsky, I, I don't think there's significant differences between any of those players. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring up Mitchkoff because, you know, we asked the question with Drancer on Monday that if he fell to 11th, you know, would the Canucks take him? And he's like, there's no way he's going to fall to 11th. But before we get to him, and it, for, for listeners that don't know, for the VIPs that, that don't know why this player could potentially drop, it's because of his contract in the KHL and he's not going to be available at this point. And I mean, all things can be negotiated, but until 2026. So that's a long time to have to wait for a prospect. But let's go to the top because, you know, a lot of people that I talk to say that Fantilli is a lock. At number two, is he a lock or is there a chance that Carlson or Smith or maybe even Mitchkov, just based on true talent, could potentially touch that number two spot? I think most scouts I talk to think he is the very likely candidate to be the second pick. I do not think he is a lock. I think especially this upcoming world championships where you're going to have both Fantilli and Leo Carlson present for Team Canada and Team Sweden, respectively, uh, could be a determining factor if, say, Carlson significantly outplays Fantilli, for example. But I think in the eye of most evaluators I talk to, Fantilli is the number two guy right now. Hey, Corey, thanks for doing this. Uh, a lot of Canucks fans are curious about David Reinbacker because he's the consensus top defender and a right shot, and the Canucks have a lot of needs in those positions. It was interesting. I, I went back um, yesterday, looked, looked and you'd have to go back 40 years to find a draft where not a single defender went in the top 10. So right away, my thought thought is that, hey, history sort of seems to tell you that even though this is a very forward heavy draft, that, you know, despite he, despite Reinbacker being sort of in some scouts' eyes and, and in some some public rankings, I know you're higher on him than, 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 uh, than some others that, you know, some felt that He's more of a mid first round guy, but it, you know, based off history, it seems like there's a you know very strong possibility that he might already be off the board uh, by the time the Canucks are picking at uh, at eleven. Is that a fair assessment? Do you think? When do you think we could see the first defenseman off the board in this draft? Yeah, I think there's a pretty strong chance Ryan Barker is going to be a top ten pick. I think I don't know if he's going to be long gone, but he could be. I think he will. The, he's, if I say quite likely he is gone by the Canucks pick at 11. I think generally, again, there's not a universal opinion. I know the odd scout or two who have some questions on the offensive upside, et cetera. But I would say most evaluators in the league I talk to are very high on this player. And I think, you know, whether it's Montreal at five, Arizona at six, Philadelphia at seven, I think those are all very realistic landing spots for this player. Absolutely. We also did 
um, your uh, your staff mock draft in the immediate aftermath of of the lottery once the order was re- was revealed, and uh, even in that sort of situation, you had Ryan Backer go, some of the uh, most talented centers go, and and when it got to picking for Vancouver and trying to think from their perspective and and what they'd want, it was um, a spot without an obvious answer in terms of what to do because, of course, the the top right shot defender was gone. You know, I'm looking at okay, best player available here is probably a winger, which is um, an air, which is an area the Canucks are deep in. So it's like, do you take a winger? Do you m- maybe reach for a defender at, at 11, which might be a bit uh, a bit rich in that spot, um, or do you trade down a few slots and pick up some extra a- assets? Uh, to then, you know, in the middle first round, pick up a center defenseman. Um, there was just a lot of options and it, and it didn't seem like there was um, an obvious solution there, you know, based off of even how that mock scenario unfolded. How would you sort of approach the 11th pick if, if you're in Vancouver's shoes? Yeah, I, I think you're right. There is no obvious answer. Even when you the guy you guys did pick, which was Axel, Axel Sandin Pelica uh, from Shalevchia, uh, when I was doing my scout survey, of our of our mock afterwards, I didn't put this in the article, but one asked like like why would Vancouver take that guy at eleven? Like you you picked that guy to to run a power play, and he ain't running no power play in Vancouver. Uh, so it's an it's an interesting dynamic there. You know, I think even the other Swedish defenseman Tom Willander could potentially be in that mix. Uh, you know, but I think you I think you you know you you and uh, Tom and and Farhan are well aware. You, know, you look at this organization's depth chart. Center and defense are are things they desperately need. I think defense is is the one that that certainly stands out, and I think I think Will Lander and Axel Sandin Pelica are pretty reasonable defensemen to consider at that slot. I think a lot of scouts would talk you talk to would consider Dmitry Simashev on talent to be in that conversation. But the same thing with Mitchkov, KHL contract, albeit only for two more seasons, not three extra seasons, which is more of a standard amount when dealing with a top KHL prospect. Um, it, it's tough. Like I think. The observation of a lot of people in the league is there's a lot of, you know, small skill high in the draft. And if you feel you already have your skill guys taken care of, you know, how much of that really do you want to add to your organization? You know, do you, do you reach, do you take the best player available? I think those are very interesting uh, dilemmas to consider if you're in the Vancouver Canucks position. Yeah, I mean, at 11, and I saw a report earlier today that, you know, if you're a top 20 player in the draft, you've got a really good chance of making it in the NHL. What your ceiling is is going to vary, obviously, within all of that. So if you sit at 11, and certainly it makes a, it makes sense for the Canucks, potentially, if they choose to draft by need, to trade back. But does it make sense in their position to, at 11, just take the best player available, not reach for need, even if it means winding up? You got to take a winger because that just happens to be the best player available. Yeah, maybe. I also kind of think my suspicion is when draft day rolls around, I see all these public rankings, I see all these mock drafts. I suspect there will be more defensemen present in the top 15, top 20 than we're kind of seeing projected right now. I think like whether it is Willander, whether it is Simashev, uh, whether it is one or two other players, I feel like somebody, some of these guys are going to work their way in there, not just because it's drafting for need, but I think because that position is just so valuable that I think – I, I believe teams will rate certain players higher than maybe other people in the public might be rating them right now. Yeah, the most amusing part of any draft is the – Every team basically saying we had this guy rated higher on our board. Um, Who is the player that has the biggest variance in your mind from the evaluators that you've talked to that somebody might have him in the top seven or eight or 10 and somebody might not even have him in the first round? Like who is that player that has that level of feast or famine up, you know, floor versus ceiling? 
Oh, that's oh top seven versus nine in the first round is quite a it's quite a deviation. Um, okay, but even even ten or fifteen spots, like who yeah. who's got that guy that's got the biggest gap? Yeah, I think there's a couple of them come to mind. I think uh, I think Dave Danielson is one of them that has uh, some significant debates within the league. I think uh, David Edstrom is one that has significant debates within the league. I think both of the, the locomotive kids, uh, Daniel Boot, Dmitry Simashev, you can have those kind of reasonable discussions with, with people in the NHL. And I think it just depends on, uh, you know, what, what you value in a player and maybe some various risk factors with them. Um, but I think those are four that come to mind in, in that regard. You mentioned Nate Danielson, and I wanted to ask you about him because – you know, he sort of profiles as a savvy right shot, two-way center with size, um, just a solid all-around player. It's interesting where some people view him as maybe having a lower ceiling and, and maybe being more of a middle six upside type of guy. And and therefore, um, him maybe being closer to the middle of the first round. But you had him ranked, um, I believe, all the way at uh, number five, which is uh, definitely uh, a lot higher than most people's boards. And again, it's interesting because... I, th- I, th- I think he was six or seven. Oh, sorry. My apologies. Um, but yeah, he was very high and, um, he's a player that obviously could be realistically available for the Canucks and, um, and, and obviously checks off some stylistic and, and need-based boxes as well. Uh, can you just explain, um, why you, why you love his game and, and how you project his uh, future? Yeah, sure thing. Yeah. I think the, the debates around him are reasonable. I think you look at say his point production this season, especially as a late birth date in the W in the WHL. And I don't think you're blown away. Like you typically would be for a super high draft pick. Um, but I, I think this guy has a lot of traits that get me excited about him as a pro prospect. You know, he's a nearly six foot two right shot center who skates quite well. I think he competes well. And I think there is offense in his game. Actually, there's significant offense in his game. I just, I just was really underwhelmed by the team around him this year. He, you know, he was playing with two guys who will probably never get even close to the National Hockey League. Uh, and for as you look in previous seasons, like say his draft minus one season where he had Ridley Gregg there, where he had Vincent Iorio there, where there was a couple other guys, solid uh, older players there in that team. He scores over a point per game, even the previous season. So that's his draft minus two in the, in the COVID bubble. You know, he said, I think he scored something like 15 points in 20 games when again, there was better players in Brandon there. Uh, I think that was even Braden Schneider was still there, for example. So I, I think this is a guy that has more offense than I think he's being given credit for. You know, I watched, I've watched him a lot this season and you see him match up against top names like Brian Yeager and Moose Jar, even Connor Bedard and, and Regina. And he's guys that skate with these guys and, and make, still makes a lot of plays even when the other guys are on the ice. Um, so I, I think there's legit skill to go with the size and the skating. And I think that that profile to me lends itself to a guy who I think has a lot of NHL upside. But I also I do understand the arguments against him and, and I think they're reasonable. With uh, the Canucks, they in this draft don't have a second round pick because of the Philip, Philip Peronic trade, but they do have a lot of uh, sort of mid-round picks and third and fourth rounds. And uh, Patrick Alvin has mentioned the possibility of, of potentially moving up. And, and I don't think he's re- referring to the uh, referring to the first round pick at 11, I think he's probably referring to them not having a second and maybe do we move up from the third to, to the second. Uh, how do you see this draft class shaking out beyond the first round? How strong is it, is the second round? And do you think that uh, sounds like a, a reasonable sort of idea for the Canucks to, to maybe consider closer to the draft um, on day two is, uh, is looking to pa- package maybe a couple of their mid-round picks and, and moving up into that second round as well? I think to me, once you get past the top 20 to 
five guys. I think it looks pretty much like every other single draft, in my opinion. I think most drafts are defined at the very top. And obviously, this year, we have a very special top of the class, not just because of Connor Bedard, who was an outstanding prospect, but you have a couple other guys uh, there who are really significant talents as well. So it moves everybody at the top, guys who would typically go 10, they go 13 or 14, guys who typically go 15, go closer to 20. But eventually, that, that smoothens out. A little bit. And in terms of trade up and trade down, it's hard to speculate on, on May 10th or might even on June 28th. Uh, but you know, typically that just is on the board. Guys will trade up or trade down. If there's a guy that's, that's, that's sticking out to them on their board that they have rated really highly and they think the math makes sense to them, even maybe if you go to say one of those typical draft pick calculators in terms of what the value is, even if it may not make sense on that calculator, it makes sense on their board. So I think it, you won't know the answer to that question until the draft actually plays out and it depends. Uh, how the Canucks have certain players valued. Back in the first round, and another name I saw tied to the Canucks uh, from some scouts that Harm and Thomas talked to on Monday, but um, uh, where am I here? Zach Benson. Uh, yep. Again, on the wing, undersized player, 5'11", 163, left-handed shot. Uh, you've got him at 17th in your rankings. Um, small player who's been able to score at every level. Even managed to score in the WHL as an undersized 15-year-old. Yeah. Um, does his game translate? Can he get past the, you know, anytime you're small skill, you get labeled as soft skill. Can he get past that label? And he's definitely not soft skill. He is hard skill. Like yes, this guy uh, was, uh, even when he was on, he was on a top WHL team as a 16 year old. He was the first guy over the boards, killed penalties. Like this guy is a competitor. Um, and, you know, he wins a lot of battles and he gives it his all every night. And he's been a really, really good CHL player for the last few years. Uh, I think the question with him is just the size and the skating profile. I think he's an average skater to go with the five nine frame. So I think those are the concerns w- with projecting him to the pro game. I think I, I, I've had qualms with seeing him projected top five, top seven. I think that's a little rich for his profile. But I think when you start getting close to the Canucks pick at eleven, I think that's where it becomes much more reasonable. We talk about a guy with his prolific scoring abilities, prolific skill and hockey sense. Uh, I think that's more of a fit. I think he's a very good prospect. And I think at 11, it's definitely more reasonable. I think that's probably closer to where he goes on draft day. Player like David Enstrom from Sweden, who many people believe, you know, is still going to need some time over there. Um, how much of a reach would he be for Vancouver at 11? You've got him projected at 18, but or ranked at 18, I should say. But as a center, you know, you're, you're going to get that scenario where one team who might have a need might elevate what they view him as a player so that they could potentially have him fill that need. I really like this player, and I think his name is definitely buzzing within NHL circles right now. I think 11 is a little high for me because I just don't think that has that level of offense in him. But when you're 6'3", you can skate and you compete like he does. I think that's a, it's a very nice starter package there for a pro prospect. And I think there is going to be secondary offense as a pro and in the NHL. He reminds me a lot of Joel Erickson Eck at the same age, who around around 20, probably would go a little bit higher if you redid that draft right now. Even it was a, it was an excellent draft. Uh, so this this is a very good prospect. But I think at eleven, I think you're hoping for a tad more offense. Among the D after Rhinebacker, there's obviously you know Axel Sandin Pelica, and, and like you had mentioned, I ran into some of that same internal sort of debate about all right, he's a small offensive defenseman, and, and I think in an ideal world, um, he's not the right right or, or perfect stylistic fit for what the Canucks are sort of looking for on the back end. Uh, so then I sort of was looking at some other names and, um, you know, I, I, Tom Willander seemed to have an interesting profile as uh, as a two-way right shot guy with some size. Um, 
all around potential and seems like his stock has has really been trending up. I know, you know, he isn't really in that conversation yet in terms of the 10 11 range, but definitely seems like he's he, trending he upward. Yeah, I'm like how do you feel about his game? I think he can get there. I think I I wouldn't be shocked if he went top 15 on draft day. Like I think he's a really good hockey player. I think he's really well thought of in the league. And it's interesting to think about the Santin Pelica thing too, where it's like you go back over history, you look at the teams that have not only made the Stanley Cup final or won the cup, but even make the final four. It's like how many of them have two five foot eleven or smaller defensemen in their top four? I it would be I would be hard pressed to think of many teams or even any examples to be quite honest. So it, it would be interesting if the Canucks went down that road with Sandin Pelica. But Willander, I think, looks more like a typical NHL defenseman. He's one of the best skaters in the draft. He's six one. He competes hard. The question was the offense, but I think he as the season went on, he started answering those questions. Uh, you know, he looked like a really important player in the J20 playoffs there for Rogla, helped him win a title, uh, was hugely important for Sweden's under 18 team at the World Championships, played 30 minutes in that gold medal game against the United States. Uh, I think scored a point per game or just over a point per game in that tournament too. Um, so I think all those components lead to a guy who I think should be in the conversation high in the draft. And I think, frankly, should be in the conversation at 11. That's awesome to hear for for Canucks fans. They'd love to, um, you know, hear about an intriguing right shot defensive with size. Uh, last player I wanted to ask you about was uh, Braden uh, Jaeger. Seems like he's one of the um, polarizing players that scouts are trying to figure out. Where I think, you know, after his dominant Ivan Holinka, a lot of people had really really high expectations for him this season, and he had a bit of an. Under- it was still a good season, but bit of bit underwhelming relative to expectations. And um, it sounds like a lot of people, a lot of scouts are trying to figure out, okay, what version of of this player are are we getting? The the one before this draft year, where it seemed like um, there was a really really high ceiling, or, or and how do we weigh this uh, more modest regular season in the context of of his potential? Uh, first of all, how confident are you that he can stick at center, given uh, given that he's a little bit undersized, I believe, at five eleven and um, where do you sort of sit in terms of viewing his uh, his upside and um, whether you're uh, more of a believer or a little bit more skeptical? It wasn't just a great Ivan Holinka. It was the, it was his, he was an amazing as underage. I think he scored 30-plus goals. Again, in the previous year in the COVID bubble, scored a lot too. So this is a guy with a, a really rich track record for being the second pick in his Bantam draft. Um, and I, I think, you know, his season wasn't great. His playoffs, though, was a little reassuring. Nearly two points per game in the WHL playoffs. Um, including, you know, pushing that very talented Winnipeg Ice team right to the brink. And he was a big reason why they went so deep in that series. So that was reassuring to see. I think there is still a question, though, just watching him, not just this season, but all the last two seasons on, you know, is this a dynamic 5'11 guy or is this just a pretty good all-around 5'11 guy? And if it's the former, you get excited, top 10 pick guy you can think of with a lot of potential. If it's the latter, you're thinking, okay, you know, he's – good skater, good, you know, good competitor. He's got some pretty good skill and can shoot it, but there's not like an exciting element about this player at 5'11". That's probably why I think he's going to go, maybe not go top 10 as we once thought. I think he's probably going to go a little bit later than that. And I think there is a question whether he's a center or not. I think he, and he's a, a fantastic junior center. You know, he was number one center for Canada, the U18s. Uh, but when you're 5'11 and you're a good, not exceptional skater, I think that there aren't a whole lot of those guys that stick in the middle of the, in the NHL. Some scouts think he'll be a wing. Some scouts think he'll be a center. So, like, I think it's a 50-50 proposition. And I, but I definitely wouldn't draft him and confidently proclaim he's going to be a top two-line center. 
Corey, thanks so much for doing this. So many names to dive into and possibilities for the Canucks. And we know a lot is going to change between now and when they actually pick. If, in fact, they pick at 11, if there's trades in front of them, if they decide to uh, to move in either direction. So I, I know it's going to be intriguing and you're going to be all over it. Thank you so much for doing this. And hopefully we'll get you on again before the draft. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That is that is Corey Pronman, uh, NHL prospect analyst for The Athletic. When we come back, we'll get into some Canuck topics, including Canuck's most recent signee, a bit of an abbreviated playoff run, and more when the VanCast continues. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Just a reminder, I have been driven to my appearance on the VanCast, courtesy of my good friends at Key West Ford in New Westminster. Some great stuff there from Corey. I'll, I'll tell you for me, Harm, Tom Olander's the guy I want to see Vancouver get. I know he's got him rated 15th. I've seen him rated higher in other prospect lists. But I think they need to find a way to, to address one of those two needs. And, you know, this is a player that I think has got a pretty good ceiling. Uh, six one and a half, hundred and eighty pound right shot defenseman, a guy that's played heavy minutes for Sweden. He's going to spend some time collegiately playing for Boston University. You know, he's not a like he skates well, but if you look at his game, he's not a player that is kind of locked into one type of game, right? You can put him up there with Quinn Hughes if you need to. He's not dependent on power play for production, you know, and he doesn't necessarily have high, uh, high end production, but he looks like a player that absolutely projects as a top four long-term defenseman in this league and they can get him and they can, you know, spend a year at BU and get him up here in a hurry. Yeah. There's no doubt that to me, based off the stylistic profile, that he's more attractive than Sandine Pelica, despite many just publicly having Sandine Pelica ahead of uh, Will Ander. I will say in general though, that a defenseman at 11 in general, like you have to be confident about that because I, I, I do think, in just in having spoken to managers and, and teams that a lot of them are wary that they they really believe that the top 11 12 should be forward heavy and and most of the sort of scouts that we've we've talked to have sort of said that you know at, at 10 11 they they didn't even feel that Rhinebacker um based off of his talent should um should warrant um warrant that that type of top 10 uh selection that they felt it was it'd be a bit of an overdraft to take him. So you just have to be a little bit careful um, along those along those lines because the last thing you want to do is keep in mind, you don't want to pass on a guy who, uh, even if it's a winger that ends up becoming a really, really, really high-end player. I mean, you think back to the last time a draft class was as highly touted as this one was 2015. You look at that 2015 draft class, there were, like you had Miko Rantanen go 10. 
you had Timo Meyer go nine. You had Kyle Connor go in the teens. Like the last thing you'd want to do is end up in a scenario where like those those guys didn't go top fives. The point I'm trying to make is you had legit star players um, that um, that were in and around where the Canucks are going to pick in this year's draft. And if this this year's draft is indeed as strong as that 2015 one, or at least close to it, you have to make sure that there isn't a significant sort of talent differential um, that that you're passing up on if you, if you do take a def- uh, take a defenseman. But um, Willander definitely is intriguing. I, I think he should warrant significant uh, consideration. And um, the good thing for the Canucks is that I believe Willander also, um, you know, has played for Rogla, and the Canucks should have good ties with with Rogla and, and the Abbots that uh, that run the team over there just because of their experience with Nils Hoglander coming up from there. So hopefully they can lean on that relationship to get as much insight as, uh, as possible on the player and, and sort of um, understanding whether he is worth um, being taken that high. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Canucks pick a year ago, Jonathan LaCaramacchi, who had a, had a difficult season, just signed his entry-level deal with the organization. So we certainly don't expect him to s- expect to see him in a Canuck uniform next season. But the organization, and maybe this is just spin, but it feels like they believe how he finished off the year and just the, the bounce back. And, you know, they view it as a level of, of mental toughness and, you know, positive traits that he showed. Whereas for the bulk of this season, I think a lot of people in Canuck Nation were pretty nervous about where this was going to go, given the challenges that he was dealing with, both in terms of on-ice performance and injuries. Yeah, well, to me, the signing speaks volumes in terms of their actual confidence, right? Because look, I mean, publicly, what else was the organization going to say? They weren't going to come out and say, we're worried about this guy's development. I mean, you're not going to throw an 18, 19-year-old kid under the bus like that and put that type of pressure and and create sort of uh, concern in, in the fan base. But for them to then go out and sign LeCaramacchi to an ELC despite them not having to do that this summer because it doesn't sound like he's going to come over to North America for uh, this season. He's probably going to spend another year in Sweden. So they didn't have to do this. They, The fact that they were proactive about getting this done, especially when other teams in that type of scenario might have sort of wanted to see how, how things play out, especially because... There, there have been examples in the past where if you, let's say, have a first-round pick who's not trending in the right direction, who's overseas, like with uh, with Minnesota, with Philip Johansson, they take time before making that ELC decision because if you don't sign the guy uh, and you're worried and, you know, let's say at the end of next season, he had had another um, sort of tough development year, they could have looked at that and gone, all right, we don't think his chances of making the, making the NHL are very high. Um, we might just pick up a compensatory second round pick for not signing him. So the fact that they proactively got in front of it and signed him now, despite the fact that they didn't have to, that to me s- says a lot about just how bullish they are of uh, about him being able to overcome what was a tough regular season. And, the, and then, of course, finishing strong in, in the playoffs. That to me means a lot more than uh, them sort of talking him up, if that, if that makes sense. Actions be lo- speak louder than words. With the talk, though, do you buy it? Like, do you buy that he's, um, you know, back to being this legitimate prospect? And for me, look, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater with an 18-year-old kid, right? I think everybody's got a different path, and I think it's way too early to overplay what happened in his draft plus one season. There's a lot there still, in my opinion. Absolutely, especially because 
I do think he's one of the younger players from that uh, draft class. And again, it was promising that he finished the playoffs on a positive note, at least, right? Especially given all the context around his injuries, there's at least a plausible sort of explanation for why he had been quiet in the regular season and didn't produce as much in the offense game. There's a plausible reason for why he didn't produce uh, or, or really stand out at five on five in the world juniors, despite there being an expectation of him playing a pivotal top six um, role. It was just a stop and, and start and stop type of season for him in and out of lineup. Uh, very tough with um, the sort of injuries he faced. And also you have to keep in mind that um, even before he was drafted, the like Karamaki had um, had mono and then the organization genuinely believes that all the travel then related to the combine, the draft itself, the uh, the, the summer development uh, camp uh, after he was drafted, I think they felt that, okay, considering how anybody who's had mono knows that it the, the impact can linger for months, that, okay, all the travel and w- must have been really taxing on, on his body and affected his summer training, which then obviously affected would have had an impact on uh, his performance uh, last season. So I'm not too worried yet. Obviously what you're just hoping for now is that he needs to take a big step next year though. Like you're, you, you, you would be a little bit concerned if he stagnates um, next year for sure. But I'm still at the point now where there's an, there's enough plausible reasons for the lack of production, in the regular season. And again, ending the playoffs on a high note is, is awesome. That's what you really wanted to see. All right, let's uh, change gears before we wrap up here and talk a little bit about Abbotsford. And, you know, we were hoping for a a longer playoff run just to get a sense of what some of these guys do in high pressure, big stakes games. And the more opportunities you get to do that, the more you can you can take away. I mean, we know it's not the NHL, but pressure is pressure. Uh, Vancouver loses the first two games in overtime before coming home on uh, Wednesday, a week ago today to beat Calgary at home by goal. And then Friday, they score in the third period to go up 2-1, and then in a four-minute stretch, give up quick goals to go down 3-2, which proved to be the final. All four games, one-goal games, uh, they face an elite goaltender in the other end. What do you make of their second-round exit? There's no shame in it, right? The Rangers were the best yeah. regular season team in the AHL. This is, as you mentioned, most of the games have been tight. Wolf was outstanding in this series. I mean, overall, this for me, has been a really promising year for Abbotsford. It's been one of the positive sort of silver linings to come uh, out of this season because we know that there's been a lot of turmoil with the main club, the NHL roster, but in Abbotsford, more or less, it's really been smooth sailing, which honestly, when you go back to the history of what it used to be in Utica under Jim Benning, there, there, there always used to be concerns about you know what's going on with Cole End. Why is Jonah Gadjevich not really producing? Why is Jet Wu stagnating? Um, Ole Levy's been okay in Utica, but he's not really dominating. Like, like what's going on there, right? Jonathan Dallin, for whatever reason, even even if you go back to uh, 2015, 2016 in in those days, isn't really living up to expectations. Whereas now you look at them having a successful regular season, but. Also, more importantly, the development of uh, some of their young players. I mean, Jet Wu taking a huge step and going from uh, a player that, you know, a lot of people, including myself, had almost kind of written off as a prospect, but that for for him to then, under Jeremy Carlton, have this huge, um, have this huge step forward. And, and now you look at him and you go, okay, like, 
he's, he's, it's not a high ceiling prospect by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, I look at him now and I know management was impressed with him. And, and so you look at him and go, could he be a depth call-up guy? Could he play NHL games for you down the road? It, it seems like a realistic possibility now. Archie Baines is a first-year pro coming over from the WHL. It's usually a steep uh, learning curve from junior to the a- AHL. He really turned it on in the second half, especially, and, and not just producing offensively, but especially on the defensive side of things. The penalty kill. Uh, I thought the coaching staff did a fantastic job of helping him acclimate and, and become the best best version of himself. Uh, you look at Danila Klimovic, right? Up and down rookie season, but then here, uh, I believe he scored 17 goals, started to earn more trust and, and quiet playoffs, no doubt, no doubt about that. But uh, even just him through the regular season as a whole, starting to improve his two-way habits, those were all promising signs. And uh, I, I think in general, all the reports, all of the the feedback that you're getting around what's going on in Abbotsford is is really, really promising. They've invested a lot of resources there, and um, it's been nothing short of a success from my uh, vantage point. Yeah, I can't argue with that at all. I just, it's been such a win having them right there. I mean, we talk about what they could potentially do with the goaltending situation next year and how they could take Silovs and, you know, and one of the other goaltenders and potentially work in a scenario where they could go back up by committee to still allow those guys to develop with enough game time in Abbotsford. Like those options just weren't available to them before. So, uh, and having the Sedins being able to go there, like you were saying, and, and, you know, Colleton's a good coach. I think eventually he's going to be back in the NHL level very quickly, but as long as they can keep him in Abbotsford, I think it's a good thing for their development process because we had talked about that previously, you know, when Cole was there and before Ryan Johnson kind of got in charge of that side of things, uh, you know, along with, um, uh, along with, um, Cammy, they weren't developing, right? It, it wasn't just that they didn't have prospects. The development process wasn't what it currently is. So it's certainly headed in the right direction there. Uh, real quick, two massive games in the NHL tonight. Uh, so I know that by tomorrow we'll know what's happened here, but we've got the Leafs trying to stave off elimination down three, nothing in Florida with their top players being dormant, right? I mean, when, when you look at Matthews, Marner, um, you know, and uh, Tavares, uh, they were just nowhere to be found in game three, right? Like for a team that had everything on the line, they didn't show up. Now they're saying all the right things about, you know, we're, we're not worried about that. We're, we like our process. We're just one game, send it back to Toronto. And then you've got Vegas, who responds from a 5-1 loss with a 5-1 win. Love the subplot here with, um, you know, just with the top players, with Eichel especially going against McDavid. You know, a, a lot to digest in that series as well. But can the Leafs stave off elimination tonight? I mean, they. I mean, sure, they can. I just don't we know see they them. Can. Okay, are they, are they going to? I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't know. The bigger point is just that they're not going to win the series, right? They're not going to win four in, a, four in a row. Like, I mean, it, it takes something special. It's only been done four times in NHL history. And to bet that this group where the top players have year in, year out, fallen short in the playoffs and crumbled under pressure, like even if they did push it to a game five or a game six or a game seven, um, what's their record in elimination games? It's it's awful. So I don't, um, yeah. I, I don't, Sort of, even if they win tonight, I, I mean, it's not going to really change my view on this. It's been like that game, games one and two, you could understand and go, all right, Bobrovsky was great. But then game three, even with New Jersey, who will probably get eliminated, but in game three, their top guys at least responded and they scored eight goals and brought it back to at least a 2 1 series um, uh, deficit, made it a series again. Whereas down 3 0, I mean, it's. 
it, it's it's nearly over. Yeah, I, what, what I'd love to see is for them to find a way to win tonight and then lose in Toronto. That would make it even funner. But um, I, I do think they're going to get swept. I, I just don't think there's much left there. And, I, you know, the emotion that came out in Tampa, you know, I, I'll never forget when when Alex Burrow scored in Game 7 in 2011 against Chicago. And I remember Bob McKenzie on SportsCenter that day saying the only thing missing from this was the Stanley Cup being presented. Like, those were the stakes in that game, and that was the emotion. And for the Canucks to to kind of rein that in and wind up winning the next two games and uh, next two series in five games was pretty impressive. And when I look at the Leafs, I just don't think they've ever found their game since that. Like, the that was the, the weight that needed to be lifted for that organization. I don't know if they felt like it was enough, but before they realized that they still got six more weeks of hockey to go, I, I think it's become too late. And, you know, I, I think they've just been punched in the face and I'm not sure they're going to be able to punch back at this point. So we will see when we talk next week. Hey, listen, if you're looking for other podcast options, the top-rated U.S.-born draft-eligible prospect, Will Smith, joins Sean Gentilly and Max Boltman on this week's The Athletic Hockey Show. Also, Rob Pizzo, Jesse Granger, and Mike Russo welcome my good friend TSN's Craig Button to the Wednesday Roundtable at the Athletic Hockey Show. And as for us, you can get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 per month for just 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash vancast. We will be back next Monday. So don't forget to tune in then, Harm. I know we got we got you midweek. You're a busy guy. So what are your big plans for the weekend? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, probably spike ball on the beach or something. <laughs> All right. Send me pictures. We'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.